so, so typically before, when we summarize one, one book as uh, expository preaching, which is that model whereby you kind of start in a book and you work through it, um, it can take a season of time, as it normally does, to honor each text, to do your best, to, to work through a, a, a book at a time. That then brings you to a place where uh, the room kind of needs to come up for air, or everyone needs a little bit of oxygen, before we jump right back into committing to another like three-year term of a single author. Everyone's like, okay, whew, we did Luke. Luke. Luke treated us well. He nourished us, and that was good, but let's just like take a timeout, call a TV timeout for a minute, and let's... Let's regroup. So, so what we like to do between is in a short, a short season, because we really are committed to the model of exegesis and exposition that follows the author's intent, whereby you can see the theological meaning that he has for you. Um, but again, in, in those little break periods that we have, we, we fill them in with, uh, with other topics we feel to be very important and instructive. The one that we just finished on forgiveness, obviously, um, in each small group, good, rich discussion, as Dan handled forgiveness as a topic that is important and instructive for all of us, that we all experience, if you're human, you, you've wrestled with the thought of forgiveness. So that's important for us. Um, and, and the format here uh, tends to be... Uh, uh, a little bit more on the teachy side, teaching side than preaching side for the next few weeks as we handle biblical covenants. Uh, again, I don't prefer to be more kind of uh, teachy or, or, or instructional on a Sunday morning, just to be honest with you. Um, uh, preaching is different than teaching, and, and we prefer the model of preaching. But we don't have a lot of opportunities and outlets whereby a different model, such as a t more teaching model, can emerge because we just don't have a Sunday evening service. So um, again, a, a couple of caveats there for the next couple of weeks uh, together is we're going to study, um, as you see there in the slide, uh, biblical covenants, or, or as I'll describe for you momentarily, covenant theology. Um, why covenant theology? Why did, why, why did we pick this um, as elders and kind of looking at our church family and looking at where we're at as a ministry? Um, why, why pick covenant theology? Well, part of it is because it's going to assist us in where we are going to go for a season of time. We're going to settle into the book of Genesis for a season of time. Um, we are going to do the tightrope walk of Genesis 1 through 11. Um, there, there's, and I say tightrope walk, a little tongue-in-cheek. No one laughed. That's fine, either which way. Um, but the idea is there's a lot at stake for everybody in the book of Genesis, dealing with origins, dealing with the beginning of God's world, dealing with uh, your view way out here, whatever it is, uh, in, in, in some uh, New Testament section, by a web of related ideas, of which I hope to convince you of for the next few weeks, by a web of related apparatus and ideas, is rooted somewhere in Genesis. You have stake there. So, so, so um, Genesis 1 through 11, though, is where we're going to spend some expositional time. We're going to settle in, um, and I don't know how long it'll take, but, but it, it'll be a time for all of us to settle in and to receive some rich fruit from Genesis 1 through 11. So back to covenants. Uh, a covenant theology sets up well for your understanding, then, of exposition going through Genesis. In other words, it is a lens, that will equip you. It's, it's, you're, you're pulling out something to read, and, and you need glasses. So as soon as you open your book to read it, sitting in your chair, relaxing in the evening, you're going to read a book. You grab for your reading glasses. You put them on, and there's some measure of greater clarity. Uh, a covenant theology, as I hope to convince you in the next few weeks, are, is going to be that spectacle, or, or those reading glasses, those spectacles that you put on, and it brings a measure of high definition, or brings a measure of clarity to your reading of Scripture. Not just Genesis, but the entire whole, from cover to cover. 
the other aspect, and just by way of introducing covenant theology this morning. So this morning, that, that, that's my goal this morning with you, just so we can set expectations for what are we actually doing in the next few moments. I'm introducing the idea and the structure of what is known as covenant theology. And, and then, and then and I'll introduce the first covenant that we see in time, but then we'll handle its context or its contents next week. Uh, another reason, again, by way of introduction, why covenant theology, in the, the, part of what drives us as elders in this discussion is really the majority of American evangelicals, of which you'd probably consider yourselves, right? Evangelical Protestant. And, and it would be, uh, of, of my, my, my persuasion to you is that the majority of American evangelicals view scripture, that is the entire Bible, as divided into periods of time governed by substantially different theological principles. That, 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 that hopefully isn't uncharitable, and I don't mean it in, in an uncharitable swipe. I, I just mean it like kind of more factually. Again, if, if we were to say, how, how do you handle um, your Bible? How, how do you handle interpreting sections of it? What, what are that, those pieces that you apply to your interpretation or analysis of exegesis whereby you arrive at a solid conclusion, knowing you've treated the text fairly? Or, or, or more, more maybe uh, broadly, how do you read your Old Testament versus how you read your New Testament? Because the assumption among Protestants is, again, you are reading Testaments, people of the book, right? The, the idea that, that, that post-Reformation is this cry, right? Let us have the text of Scripture. Let us read it. Okay, right. So the assumption is that all evangelicals or, 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 or majority are reading the text of Scripture, two Testaments. It would be my persuasion, again, to you, is that the majority thereby who are reading these Testaments, the majority of American evangelicals view those Testaments as divided into periods of time. Governed, and this is the key piece that I hope to challenge. Governed by substantially different theological principles. Now, now why, why is that a problem? Well, because it creates an unhealthy division between the teachings of the Old Testament and the teachings of the New Testament. And I, and I would underscore to you an unhealthy division between the teachings of the Old Testament and the teachings of the New Testament. Let me give you just a couple little categories that, again, <clears throat> are on a spectrum. So may, maybe you're really, really close, and it's not totally heretical and, and opposing. They're really close, but they're a bit too close and overlapped and confused in its categories. But let me give you a couple examples. The concepts of works versus grace. Many evangelicals look at the Old Testament as built on a principle of works. But then grace came in the New Testament. Thus, the bulk of our preaching should be from the New Testament. And we should kind of characterize the Old Testament or do summary versions of good deeds and good men in the Old Testament. Because it's principally working on substantially a different theological ground than we're at in the New Testament. Another one that is unhealthy in your vision of the Old Testament to the New Testament is, a, is the concept of faith. Individual faith is the concern of the New Testament. To the exclusion of corporate faith. There is no such thing as a corporate confession of sin. There is no such thing as a corporate sense of faith inheritance. The New Testament teaches us it's about the individual. Again, an unhealthy division. 
And it might be on a spectrum, so, so maybe it's not polarizing. That I believe totally it's only the individual, and, and in the Old Testament it was all corporate. And no, no, I, no, I'm not even submitting that it's radical in some or even the majority of versions, but I am saying many evangelicals, in fact, the majority, <clears throat> look at the Old Testament on substantially different theological principle than the New. Last category that I would offer you in a, a very uh, kind of tangible or, or easily accessible way is that the Old Testament is substantially concerned with earthly goods and an earthly vision. But when we get to the New Testament, its concerns are spiritual and internalized. And it creates an unhealthy view of how we read the Old Testament text. So it would be my persuasion, again, that, that the Old Testament is accessible, that the Old Testament is applicable, that the Old Testament is meaningful, and not in some sort of way as we view it unto them the Old Testament individual, but that it is God's delivered word to his people of all time, which is rich for you and I. So it's important that we ought read it correctly. So beginning with this morning then, we're going to do a small series, and I, and I say small, and um, I, I haven't charted the exact course. It was supposed to be four, and I'm already over. So it's going to be a few more than four. But we're going to do a small, it is going to be small, series on covenant theology. And if I could more specifically define it, I would say it like this. What am I trying to get at in this idea of covenantal theology? It is this, more specifically considering, you and I together for the next couple of weeks, considering how God has structured our relationship to him by a series of biblical covenants. That, 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 that's brass tacks. So, so covenant theology isn't this thing that is other world and, and, and left into the, to the rooms of academia. No, 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 it's how you read or don't read your Bible. It, it really is. I hope to be persuasive and convincing because truly God has structured your relationship to him, you, individual believer. My faith rests on Christ as its terminal point. My faith rests there. It resides there. I assent to that. I fall back and rest upon it. I am in him and he is in me. That is covenantal. So what we want to then study is that God has structured our relationship to him by a series, not just a singular covenant, but a series of biblical covenants. To give you a few kind of fresh off Luke examples, one coming fresh off Luke, you remember, and we're about to do so in just two or three hours from now. We learned how our Lord instituted the sacramental meal in Luke 22. You remember? We were there. We were there. It's all a haze now. But we're, we're, you, I, just give me the benefit of the doubt. You were with me and I was with you and we were there. Luke 22. And you remember that he instituted this sacramental meal of which we will go over in just a moment. And we will give also the words of institution of this meal. And it is this. This cup that is poured out for you. For who? You. Whose, whose, whose faith rests in me. It's for you, and it's poured out for you. How, what is the cup? How would you describe this cup that I receive and whereby my faith is nourished? I would describe it thus, the new covenant that is in my blood. That, that, that's what it is. It's not, it's not the new thing in my blood, the new idea to you in my blood. It is the new covenant in my blood to you. You see? 
He relates to you and you to him by covenant. Or as he says in Matthew, our Lord says it this way, as Matthew is writing and crafting and telling the aspect of the institutional meal, Matthew writes it this way of what our Lord said. He said, this is my blood of the covenant. You see, they, they hear that. That's some random thought in Nowhereville. They, 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 that, that spoke to them. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, whether it's here in just a few moments, in the Lord's Supper, at the Lord's table, or it is back in Genesis with Adam, or it is in Genesis with Noah, or it is in Genesis with Abraham, or as we see in Exodus with Moses, or we move to Samuel with David, covenant is the word God uses to describe his relationship to his people. I cannot shout it or impress upon you enough. I feel like I'm yelling the entire time so far. I don't mean to be. But if I could impress, covenant is the word God uses to describe his relationship to his people. Herman Bavink, doesn't matter here or there to you, but to me, it's a Dutch Reformed theologian um, who, who, as a sidebar, I think it's brilliant. Herman Bavink says this. I, I, again, this is rich. Go with me down this pathway. Think through this with me just for a moment. He writes, covenant is of the essence of true religion. Now again, if there's even some semblance of that being true, to all who'd say, indeed, I am religious, here's, here's Herman Bobbing saying, well, the essence of that is covenant. And then how often do we think of our relationship being covenantal. So we have a long ways to go, right? Between how often we think of our relationship to, being, to God being bound by covenant and the, um, uh, the, the, what, what Bobbing's saying is the essence of true religion. We really need to think about it a lot more. Covenant is of the essence of true religion. He goes on to say this, making possible a relation between the creator, do you see that? Making it even possible. A relation between the creator and the creature. Covenant is what makes it even possible. Underscoring the dependence of the rational, moral human beings on God. That's who you are. That's who I am. Created in God's image. Rational, moral beings. And as rational, moral beings, there is a context set about us with that volition of how we interact with God and how he condescends to us. And it is through the vehicle of covenant. So our Lord will say, this is the blood of the covenant. How you relate to me and I relate to you. I didn't lay my life down randomly. I laid it down covenantally. For a covenantal people. So, 
at the stage of the Bible's, at each stage of the Bible's story. And I think I've already rehearsed this with you, but including our own. Since we would say, where are we at in the biblical covenantal context here and now this morning? We would say we are in a new covenantal context. So see, at each stage of the Bible story, even our own right now, God relates to his people through a series of interwebbed or interlinked covenants, not a bunch of time segments that are fragmented. That is not how the Bible is to be read. It is not how God structures his relation to the world. He's not constantly working off of different theological principles and paradigms. He is functioning substantively, singularly with his people. So redemptive history, or, or if you call it the unfolding story of the Bible, if you were to read from Genesis, where we will be going in just a few moments, from Genesis to Revelation at the end, what is the web link across the Bible? Each section is coming alive, dramatically progressing through what we'd call biblical covenants. Consider just one more example. And would you turn for this example, go to Luke 1, just for, just for a quick moment. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1. Just to give one more example to, to the category of covenant theology to prove out, just to tease out how much the New Testament individual or a person in this era of biblical history saw what was happening in their own moments as connected to a web or interwebbed or interlinked covenantal history. In other words, what Zechariah is about to say and we're about to read about his own son, the baptizer, who is to come, he sees his ministry like this, like if, if, if the ground was this, and, um, and Zechariah standing here, okay, and it's flat earth, Zechariah, flat earth. He sees John the baptizer, his son, as emerging out of the progress that's going forward, of the ground. Here's the ground. He's standing here. This is normal. And, and, and then he sees this new dynamic emerge, not be created, and all of a sudden a brand new program starting. No, it's not like, well, where did that come from? He sees it visually in his prophetic pronouncements in a moment as emerging out of what already exists. It's interconnected. It's interrelated to all that went before it. He's not standing there being like, I cannot believe this new prophecy. I can't, this is amazing. Who ever heard of something? He's saying, I have heard of this myself. This isn't new. It's fulfillment. In other words, God is faithful to his covenant. Let me show you how, just briefly. Uh, chapter 1, Luke 1, 68 um, through 55 there. We'll, we'll begin with Zechariah. And you saw the introduction in verse 67. But, but listen carefully now. You, you have... Uh, you have um, a couple of beginning uh, spectacles on, just a little bit. You know you're supposed to be reading this now. I've tipped it, the hat to you. Read this in light of the Old Testament because Zechariah sees it emerging, not being created, emerging out of what exists. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Now, now notice very carefully he links it or grounds it somewhere. What do you mean by raised up? It's not that he has created a horn. He has raised up a horn. Out of what? Or, or, or from whence? In the house of his servant David. Wait a minute. 
this right here is coming from there. Let's keep going. As he spoke, right? he told us about this from the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers. That's what he's doing in time, in progressive history. He still remembers the covenant of our fathers. Because he goes on to clarify. And to remember his holy covenant. Which one? Verse 73, the oath or the covenant signed that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we should be delivered from the hand of our enemies that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days you, you see Zechariah grounds as, as foundation laying he sets the ministry of his son to come upon the foundation of the covenant that God made to Abraham. And you notice, it's not just Abraham, but it was progressed and experienced through the prophets, through the covenant made in the house of David. This is one last example um, of how the New Testament is built on the same principle theologically and substantively as the Old Testament. As you remember, and, and we don't have time to go there, but you remember the road to Emmaus that we concluded in Luke 24. Where our Lord then begins to explain the fullness of his person and work. And there, there, there's uh, the way that it's described of, of what he does to explain his own ministry in time is, and you, you remember this, and, and I remember getting hot and bothered about it then. So, so I know you remember it, and, and so do I. And beginning with Moses. So to explain his own work, it doesn't, think carefully, it doesn't say he went to Moses. He went somewhere in there and was like, there's got to be a verse in here somewhere that I can use to explain it. It's very careful. He didn't cite Moses. He began with Moses. D do you see the implication? There's a continuum of revelation. There's a thread that you can pull from Luke 24 in Emmaus Road, and you pull that thread, and it cuts right across the page of Scripture, and it goes, and it lands in Moses. It's not like he dropped down in Moses. Because it continues, he began with Moses. And then he proceeds to clarify it this way in Luke 24. He says, everything written about me in the law of Moses, first five books, and the prophets, the prophetic utterances, and the Psalms, or the writings, the threefold division of your entire Old Testament, is what he covered. It is a thread that you can pull and it's interconnected web of revelation from author to author, book to book, as one single people united in Christ moves across the pages of history. That is called covenantal theology. So, the biblical covenants that we'll get to and we'll develop here for a couple of weeks are a sort of grid 
And, 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 I, and I know when people hear grid, they think, or, or a concept of theology or of how to read your Bible, they think you're taking something like this that we all create, and then we lay it on the Bible. And that, that, they're like, that's the language of grid. But I, hopefully, what I would push back, push back, push back, or maybe more forcefully with two hands, I'd really push back, is the idea that, that like Zechariah, Zechariah didn't put a grid on the revelatory information about John, his son, who was to come. It's like, oh, there goes Zechariah again, putting that covenant theology grid on the Bible. He just throws down on David, adds Abraham. You people are finding Abraham everywhere. Well, no, no, no. no. So, so he's not laying it on there. But, but he is reading a moment in time in light of it. That is what I mean to say covenant or biblical covenant serve as a sort of grid. Now, here's my caveat to that. Or more specifically, that emerges from within. So the biblical covenants are a sort of grid. Yes, absolutely, no one's denying it. That emerges from within the biblical text, as exemplified with Zechariah and numerous others. And it provides a certain degree of order and coherence to the overall biblical message. Because there is order in the text. And it began with like Genesis 1.1. And, it, and, and all to the very final part where John in Revelation says, may nobody add anything to this word that has been written, or may they experience the curses of adding. I forget what his exact comment is there, but you get the idea. In Revelation, he ends that way. And Genesis 1-1 began this way. And the entire thing is a web connected by covenant. Now, if we are going to have, um, if we are going to gain any clarity regarding the message of the Bible, then we must begin with a basic definition of covenant. So before you put it up, I would say this, because I'm, I'm actually doing a slide. I told Adam yesterday, there's two slides, and he almost fell down. But anyway, we're going to have two slides this morning in an effort to be helpful. Uh, and then probably we'll end the slides. But for now, this will be helpful, I hope. Because if you're a note taker, you could jot it down. If you're just a person who wants to sit and read, uh, what, however you want to handle it, but it'll be provided to you. And this is the reason why. I'm going to give you a broad kind of working definition for covenant. Again, um, uh, covenant theology has been taking shape, right, since Paul in Romans. It's rich in Romans. We're like, oh, totally, yes. And so, but but, but as it goes and progresses through church history, right, with the church fathers, and then then you go beyond the fathers, and you go to the medieval church, and then then you're emerging in the period of the Reformation, and now here we are in kind of modern times. Uh, It's been uh, getting clarified, right, and categories are being used in order to clarify certain sections of covenant theology. It's not that covenant theology just began in the Reformation period, but, but it did get more specified or codified a little bit more clear, carefully in the Reformation period. So you have, in other words, I say all that to say there's a ton out there on covenant theology, a ton, and rightfully so. so but it makes it hard, a little bit hard, to like wrap your minds or, or your hands around a singular definition that fits every single category that you're ever talking about in the dynamics of biblical covenants for 66 canonical books. It becomes a little bit tricky at times. So so what I'm going to do is give you a broad, a basic, working definition that we ourselves, even just in one moment, will slightly nuance as we build upon the major uh, covenants of Scripture um, in in just the next couple of moments. But the basic definition uh, to uh, covenant is is this. This is what I would give you as kind of, if I were to say, like a a view, 100,000 feet. And then, and then envision it as a, as a spiral, perhaps, and it just kind of continues to spiral and get more specified, more nuanced as we interact with the biblical data. But if we're way up here at the top of the vortex, or the top of our spiral tornado, 
This is what I would suggest to you is a basic working definition of covenant. It is this, a binding relationship with blessings and obligations. If you had that basic concept, you're looking, you're able now to kind of like, maybe you have, um, maybe, I don't want to get too picky, but maybe you have the frames, but you don't have the lenses. or something. I don't know, maybe that's bad. I should just say, it, you, you, you have some information, is what I mean. You, you, a binding relationship with blessings and obligations. Now, as we move to our very first covenant relationship in time, and I'm specifying because we're going to get to a covenant that took place before time, which is my argument to you. It, but we're getting to that like in a few weeks. So, so I want you to keep that in your mind, that there is a covenant, and it is a binding relationship with blessings and obligations. That works, largely. And then we nuance a little bit, and I'm already going to nuance with you now because we're going to look at a covenant that takes place in time. It's the very first covenantal relationship in time. And guess what? Each of you and I together we share in it. I'm giving it away, but by natural generation from your mother and your father, you, you inherited this covenant. It, it was given freely and kindly and graciously. And either which way, I better just cut it off. Bad things took place, and you're in it now. That's what happened. And, and this covenant in time is defined this way. If you would, the next slide there for our nuanced covenant. Here's the definition that we're applying or we're nuancing as we consider the very first covenant that took place in time. And it is this, and, and this covenant uh, de definition will govern much of what takes place in time. It is this, a covenant is a binding relationship between God Right? So the, 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 a little bit of a contrast, a binding relationship with blessings and obligations. Now we're defining it in time. As a covenant is a binding relationship between God and human beings, right? Because we're in time. So uh, between God and human beings with blessings for obedience and cursing for disobedience. Th th that is your covenantal arrangement. That is the way in which God relates to you and you relate to him is this concept of a covenantal structure. Now, the very first covenant that took place in time, that we will witness in Scripture, and which then is our very first covenant that we'll handle the bulk of next week, is the covenant known as the covenant of works. Sometimes, perhaps, uh, those of you uh, more familiar with this would say, oh, I thought it was called the covenant of life, or, or the covenant of creation. Either which way, all, all three work, all three are used interchangeably, covenant of works, covenant of life, covenant of creation. Uh, it's neither here nor there. They're describing the same contents. For me, in my mileage, I'm going covenant of works. I think it gets to the heart of what's taking place between God and Adam, and through Adam, what's taking place between God and us. A covenant of works. Now, I made one step forward, kind of, and now we're already needing to take one step back, or maybe even two. But it's because before we get to the actual contents of the covenant of works, we need to see the way that God structured the covenant of life. In other words, the covenant of works that is specified, a covenant that is binding relationship between God and human beings, or, or we could insert at this point just for point of analogy, a covenant is a binding relationship between God and Adam, 
with blessings for obedience and cursing for disobedience. You could read it that way right now. You'd be able to read it that way, at least according to how I'm putting it forward, that Adam is in this covenant. That covenant that we'd say, a covenant is a binding relationship between God and Adam with blessings for obedience and cursing for disobedience is called the covenant of works. And that covenant that is cut between God and Adam, God and Adam, takes place in a world that God instituted and created. That covenant comes to Adam based upon the world that God had created. So we need to take one step back before we go, well, what took place in the covenant? What were the words of the covenant? First go, what is the world of the covenant? In other words, what was the world like when Adam was created and placed in a covenantal relationship with God? The first thing we'll see, and now we do have to go to Genesis and I'm going to have to work quickly and be able to land this plane in a timely fashion. But the very first thing is Genesis 1. If you turn to Genesis 1, just so we can do a little bit of kicking the tires this morning and getting started on the idea of the covenant of works. Now that we have a definition for covenant, what is a covenant? How is it functioning? And what is the first covenant, the covenant of works? Turn to Genesis 1, and I want to read, as Adam read for us just a moment ago, but I want to read Genesis 1 beginning at verse 31. Um, and, and read through chapter 2, verse 3. And, and because the first thing that I, we need to see here in the world set forth in Genesis, or as Calvin calls it, the stage upon which God performs. So, so that, that's what the world is at the time. God is creating a stage upon which he will perform. And this stage is amazing. So the first thing we see about this beautiful world that is set forward in Genesis, wherein the covenant will take place, begins in verse 31. If you're there in chapter 1, verse 34, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work. Do do you see what I'm trying to draw your attention to is the aspect of completion, the aspect of finish. God saw everything he had had made, and behold, it was very good. Verse 31, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now he's moving into like another view, recapitulating in chapter 2, recapitulating chapter 1, but with a different emphasis. Now it's zeroing on from like everything that God made um, into his work with Adam. But the point for now is to see it is finished. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done. Important here at this point of the world of Genesis. Oh, uh, um... I'm sorry, I was, I was supposed to drop down um, uh, to, to read verse 15. I'm sorry, I broke up your thought. So, so you see that it's finished. I, I, I was about to read and summarize, but I need to add one more link. Verse 15. The Lord God took man, so, so after he had rested, he had completed the work of creation, and he had rested from the work that he had done in creation. His next move is verse 15. The Lord, took, the Lord God took the man, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. 
So, so, so th this is the piece that, that is, I, I'm wanting to lay the foundation here of what we learned, very first thing, about the garden, is to observe that God, on the one hand, rested, right? I, I overemphasize rested, 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 completed, completed, completed. God is at rest in Genesis, but you notice his action to man is to do what? Place him in a garden. To do what? To work it and to subdue it. Interesting. Right now, see, now you have to go to work. Now I'm going to put on your conscience this heavy feeling of when you go to work tomorrow, you just have to go in there like whistling and happy and excited. Right? Be because here's what we get in what's called the doctrine of vocation. Um, uh, uh, or, or, or what some people refer to as a cultural mandate. In, in other words, God's work is finished and rested as far as he looks at creation. It's all very good. It's not that creation was lacking something, and so he's like, whoosh, uh, you know, I can't sew that up. I need to make man, throw him in there, and make him do it all. Th that, that's not the idea, which is really kind of how all of us view work, which is a bummer. And it's, it's hard to work against. We, we have to push back that sense of, uh, of being against the idea of work and volition and, and intelligence and giftedness and skill set and application, whereby we do make a living and provide for our families. But here you see that is a sinful view where it's like, I can't stand going there, which we all do. We all do. So it's not like, oh, I never do. Or like, you know, we always only feel that way. But come on, if you're human, you felt that way about work. You feel that way about work. So the idea is, right, but, but, but like we recognize it's, be, it's because, like, and, and granted, granted, you don't work in the Garden of Eden. I get that. It, 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 and, right? None of us do. None of us do. And that, too, is a part of the covenant of works. But, 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 but we don't anymore. We're outside the garden, and it's painfully aware. But you, you can find grace in your work. And what God has provided and called for you to do and to improve upon and to subdue and to be good at. He gave you a skill set. And it's, and it's varied across the room. You'd be like, what are you good at? What are you good at? By personality type, by hard wiring, by improved skills, by working at it. Like, people have different gifts, gifts and skill set, but as moral, volitional people, human beings, we have a skill set that God has given us to employ for the betterment of creation, the betterment of our neighbor, and the betterment of our families. That's called the doctrine of vocation. And he gave it to Adam to do good work long before the fall. It's not like work came out of the fall. Work is giftedness that God has given us for our good and his glory. So shape up at work tomorrow. Go to work. Put that, put that positive rally cap on. Get in there and really just clean that office big time. You know, whatever it is you do, right? Oh, wait, Paul said that. Do all to the glory of God. Because it can be rooted there and you can find grace there. Work actually, what he's equipped you to do, came before the fall. Adam was a hardworking, industrious, and gifted individual. So the point of that is then that God already in the theater of the Garden of Eden gave Adam a vocation. And to each one of us, productive, intelligent lives whereby we can find meaning and bring glory to God and love our neighbor. The second thing that we notice, so Adam is hardworking. Adam is given vocation in the place of the garden. God is not working, but Adam is working. So there is good still to be done in creation as human beings. Secondly, we notice Adam, uh, Adam's created condition. 
Look at verses 27 and 28 that was read for you by Adam of chapter 1. Verses 27 and 28, and I will summarize quickly. Verse 27 and 28, so God created man in his own image. This is how you and I, this is the human beings, volitional, moral individuals. This is who we are, each and every one of us. Not just some, but all, wherein dignity rises. Verse 27, so God created man, mankind, Adam, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So again, by virtue of being created in God's image, what is Adam's condition? It is not the condition that you and I share in. Yes, we are, we are by virtue created also in God's image. Yes, wherein dignity rises for all human beings. But a condition known to Adam at creation by virtue of being created in the image of God is sinlessness. A condition of which you have never shared in. By natural generation from Adam and Eve, to the, to, the, to the next and to the next and to the next and to the next by natural generation. Your father's seed to your mother's egg passing on to whereby you were born. You share in your father and your mother. You, therefore, were born in a sinful estate. But not Adam. He was created in a condition in the theater of Genesis in a sinless condition. He was absolutely without fault. I will give you one more piece just to jot down if you're tracking by notes to kind of review and think over. This is a category or the state of Adam at the garden we call complete integrity. What do we mean by complete integrity? Adam stood before God at creation. Here it is. God made Adam of his own image. Image of God. He created him. Male and female. He created them and he blessed them. He stood in a state of integrity. Notice what it means as it develops in the text. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now notice what he then says to Adam right after that. Have dominion over. And he lists all that moves on the earth. So what we learn here of Adam and his condition before God is he is a state of sinlessness or a state of integrity. He is kingly in his rule over creation. Yet a state of glory. He was a state of integrity in a consummate glory. He was in a state of integrity. We, we've read it ourselves. We know in that age, we will not fear things could. The righteousness of the Savior is imputed to me. He sees his son and he sees me. Things could go wrong. So then at this point, I wanted to note these. Let me give you these, the, these three summarizing pieces of what we have structured here this morning. It took him. It's not like Adam wandered into the garden and was like, what is this? This is wild. Between God and his humans. In chapter 2, in verse 15, he says, the Lord took the man. He's given a vocation. Whereby you do too. You, you, you have a vocation tomorrow. In a state of complete integrity before God. In other words, Adam doesn't have to. And these aspects of Genesis is what makes the covenantal life begin. 
is that Adam representative head at creation. This is critical to understanding the idea of covenantal theology, where we see this truth come alive, um, beginning in verse 12. Turn to Romans 5, as we see again this final piece of covenantal theology that we need to grasp about the theater of Genesis in order to better read and understand the truths of the gospel and our Bible, both Old and New Testaments. It is that Adam is the representative head of the whole human race at creation, meaning This is your history, individual. Beginning in verse 12, Paul here looks back on redemptive history, and he writes for you and I's benefit. He says, therefore, look at him explain the the origins of sin and condemnation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, Notice that curious phrase he says, because all sinned. Do do you see the way he's connecting you to Adam by federal representation? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, it was the consequence to the whole world, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. He goes on to explain, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. But they were sinners. Notice what he describes Adam as, as I'm putting forward to you this morning, and that is who was a type of the one who was to come. Do you see that? Adam was a type of the one who is to come. He is a federal head. He is a representative role of all that follow after him. Verse 15, who is the one who was to come that Adam was a type of? Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, which is true, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace And the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, They are sinners. They're born sinners by natural transmission from their father and their mother as Adam stood as head. But there is yet another head. So by the one man's obedience, that is, the federal head of our Lord Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. The law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more.
so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us pray.